We come to the uh, first section of uh, this book, The Island, and this is called Seeds, Names and Symbols. So the, the book is divided into three major chunks. The first is uh, Seeds, the second one is the Terrain, and then the third one is Cultivation and Fruition. So that's the uh, these... Uh, uh, the three parts of it, so the principle being uh, seeds representing the uh, sort of essential concepts, and then the, the terrain describing the um, different ways in which those um, concepts are talked about, the Buddha's different uh, teachings, explanations, and different aspects of how they are... Um, they are presented and uh, described as as working and realized in the in the teachings, and then the last section, cultivation and fruition, is particularly about um, the uh, practice and uh, the ways of um, uh, development uh, and the realization of nibbana and these uh, wholesome qualities. So the first uh, twelve chapters, so seeds, names and symbols, and the terrain. That's all me. And then the last um, uh, eight chapters uh, is all Ajahn Pasna. So we collaborated on uh, on a um, uh, 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 on pretty much everything in terms of the book. But the the original uh, sort of crafting of these chapters were, was done in that particular way. So these um, first twelve chapters are sort of out of my hand and with Ajahn Pasna's input, and then the, the last eight are by his hand with with my input. So this then is chapter one called What Is It? Nibbana, or Nirvana in Sanskrit, is a word that is used to describe an experience. When the heart is free of all obscurations and is utterly in accord with nature, ultimate reality, Dhamma, it experiences perfect <coughs> peace, joy and contentment. This set of qualities is what Nibbana describes. The purpose of this book is to outline the particular teachings of the Buddha that point to and illuminate ways that these qualities can be realized. From the Buddhist viewpoint, the realization of Nibbana is the fulfillment of the highest human potential, a potential that exists in all of us, regardless of nationality or creed. So uh, that very first um, phrase, of the, uh, just to pause for a moment, uh, I, I somewhat cribbed that from Ajahn Sujito uh, many years ago when we were invited to um, uh, Watford Boys Grammar School. Uh, we used to visit uh, a lot of schools around the area in those days, back in the uh, late 80s. And on one of these occasions, uh, Ajahn Sujito was uh, invited to go and, and teach there, and I went along with him. And uh, there was about 700 pupils at this school, and we arrived, the vehicle pulled up, and we were ushered straight into the auditorium and straight onto the stage um, with these 700 pupils and all the 40 or 50 school teachers and, and so, forth, all, all, so forth all gathered around us. And then uh, we sort of sat down on our chairs, <laughs> and this very um, confident young lad strode up with his school uniform and said, What is Buddhism? He'd obviously been prepared. That was, his, that was his line. And then without missing a beat, 
uh, Ajahn Sajita said, Buddhism is a word. <laughs> it was it was one of those uh, yes it was uh, amazing it was uh, uh, I am in awe of Ajahn Sajito's wisdom and uh, it was <coughs> without, without a, 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 a you know a fraction of a second's thought it was just right there Buddhism is a word it's a word made of two parts Bud and ism <laughs> the <coughs> Bud, apart, means uh, the mind that is awake. Uh, the ism is all of the uh, traditions and customs and forms and uh, the paraphernalia that uh, has um, grown up and supports and has uh, sustained that, that principle through, uh, through time. So <clears throat> that, um, that was such an impactful moment. It stayed with me since then. And so uh, the opening sentence here, uh, I, I, I recognize Ajahn Sajito's voice has sort of crept in there. So, <clears throat> Nibbana is a word uh, that is used to describe an experience. So, uh, I think that without going on any more, I think it's, it's good to uh, flag that because oftentimes people think of Nibbana as some sort of super heaven, like the, the kind of the really, really neat heaven that you, you can't fall away from. And it's sort of some, uh, some kind of. Um, uh, special place somewhere else, but uh, the more that you you explore the teachings and uh, and hopefully through these these readings you'll get a sense for um, nibbana is uh, as I said it's a description of an experience it's a a um, uh, a quality of, uh, of uh, attitude that uh, arises uh, within the within the heart. When there is that uh, attunement to uh, to things, and so that um, uh, as uh, we were talking about in the in, in the previous reading, uh, Ajahn Chah's definition of nibbana as the uh, reality of non-grasping, it's it's referring to an attitude. So it's much more on the subject side of things rather than some kind of shunts of uh, glorious visionary states that's occurring somewhere out in a objective field, some sort of um, thing that is seen over there, but it's far more referring to the, the, the internal subjective sense, the, the, the attitude uh, side, the, the, um, the, the side of the, the mind that's relating to, to knowing and to awareness rather than a, a kind of wonderful um, heavenly uh, object or sort of um, particular presence of, uh, of uh, forms or... or um, uh, or of uh, feelings or, or uh, uh, images or anything of that nature whatsoever. So we'll explore that more as we go along, but I feel that's a, a helpful um, say starting point. That's why we used it to begin the book with, that it's a, and to get a basic sense of what the word Nibbana is, is talking to. It's, a, it's describing an experience. In contemplating Buddhist terms and many of the ways of speech employed in this anthology, it's important to bear a couple of things in mind. Firstly, it is a feature of the Buddha's teaching, particularly in the Theravada scriptures, that the truth, capital T, and the way leading to it are often indicated by talking about what they are not, rather than what they are. This mode of expression has a rough parallel in the classical Indian philosophy of the Upanishads, 
in what is known as the principle of neti neti, meaning not this, not this. It is the phrase through which the reality of appearances is rejected. In Christian theological language, this approach of referring to what things are not is called an apophatic method. A-P-O-P-H-A-T-I-C. And if you are worrying that uh, you've never come across that in your English studies before, most English people have never come across it either. <laughs> so... Uh, it's a uh, sort of theological term uh, referring to that um, saying no to things and its opposite is cataphatic it's not about fat cats <laughs> like anode and cathode the positive and the negative uh, electrodes of a, uh, of, a, of a battery you've got the, the apo and the cato so the apophatic and cataphatic method <clears throat> it's also known as the via negativa, or the way of, of negation, and has been used by a number of eminent Christians over the centuries. For example, uh, some of you might be familiar with uh, the, um, the ascent of Mount Carmel by St. John of the Cross, and uh, the, he talks about the, this, the, uh, the spiritual path as in the symbolism of ascending Mount Carmel, which, which incidentally is just outside of Haifa and it's not a particularly grand mountain at all. <laughs> I, I went up it uh, uh, a year or two ago and it's, um, uh, it's, it's not a sort of spectacularly kind of high peak or anything. So I'm not quite sure why St. John of the Cross chose that as his imagery. But uh, anyhow. So they, there are different me methods described of the way up the mountain and the, uh, the most direct but most arduous path is what he calls the way of pure spirit. And that um, is described, uh, or his, his summary of it is nothing, 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 and even on the mountain, nothing. Nada, 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 Ion el monte, nada. I think that, that Spanish is not too. Have we got any Spanish speakers here? Yeah, it's something like that, anyway. So it's that way of, uh, of letting go, of, of describing a, a letting go of all, all imagery and concepts and. Uh, and referring to the truth or pointing to the truth by um, uh, indicating what it is not. The Pali Canon possesses much of this same via negativa flavor. And because of this, readers have often mistaken it for a nihilistic view on life. Nothing could be further from the truth, but it's easy to see how the mistake could be made, particularly if one comes from a culture committed to life affirmation such as is commonly found in the West. The story has it that shortly after the Buddha's enlightenment, he was walking along a road through the Magadan countryside in the Ganges Valley. On his way to meet up with the five companions with whom he had practiced austerities before going off alone to seek the truth in his own way. Along the road, a wandering ascetic, Upaka by name, saw him approaching and was greatly struck by the Buddha's appearance. Not only was he a warrior noble prince with the regal bearing that came from his upbringing, he was also unusually tall, extraordinarily handsome, was dressed in the rag robes of the ascetic wanderers, and he shone with a dazzling radiance. Upaka was moved to inquire. Who are you, friend? Your face is so clear and bright. Your manner is awesome and serene. Surely you must have discovered some great truth. Who's your teacher, friend? And what is it? that you have discovered. The newly awakened Buddha replied, 
I am an all-transcender, an all-knower. I have no teacher. In all the world, I alone am fully enlightened. There is none who taught me this. I came to it through my own efforts. Then Upaka responded, uh, do, you, do you mean to say that you claim to have won victory over birth and death? Indeed, friend, I am a victorious one. And now, in this world of the spiritually blind, I go to Benares to beat the drum of deathlessness. Well, good for you, friend, said Upaka, and shaking his head as he went, he left by a different path. <coughs> the Buddha realized from Upaka's departure that mere declaration of the truth did not necessarily arouse faith and was not effective in communicating it to others. So by the time he reached the deer park outside of Benares and had met up with his former companions, he had adopted a much more analytical method, what's called Vibhajyavada, and he began his first systematic teaching, the Dhammachakapavatana Sutta, the discourse on the setting in motion of the wheel of truth, by explaining the raw truth of the spiritual disease, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, discontent, suffering, and then worked through the cause of the disease, tanha, craving, the prognosis, yes, dukkha can indeed <coughs> cease, nirota, and finally outlined the medicine, the Noble Eightfold Path, Magga. It's not the purpose of this book to go into detail on this formulation. Suffice to say that all that he pronounces about the state of health, quote-unquote, to continue the, the medical analogy, is that this middle way that he has discovered brings vision, brings knowledge, leads to calm, to insight, to awakening, and to Nibbāna. So that um, the... Uh, the common observation of Lumpur Sumedho is that the first uh, talk that the Buddha gave was not a success. So that the, they, they, the, the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta is the first uh, teaching, the first discourse, but he said it wasn't. It was the dialogue with Upaka was the first discourse, and it uh, didn't go very well <laughs> in terms of, of arousing faith and, and liberation. And so then he, he uh, approached it through this um, uh, this. Uh, analytical method of Vibhajyavada. So also in the ancient times, uh, the, word, the term Theravada was not so much used, or if used at all, and Vibhajyavada was the, was the name that was used to refer to this particular strand of, of Buddhist teaching and practice, the, uh, the way of analysis. So that uh, rather than uh, that sort of the statement of the ultimate truth is this, uh, and I have, uh, I have realized it, he starts off with Dukkha, he starts off with that experience of, of dissatisfaction, of the, the, the experience of, of negativity or of, of wrongness. Um, so <clears throat> rather than, than uh, emphasizing or affirming the, the positive, he approaches it from the, from the negative, saying, well, uh, why, why is it that we're not, if there is an ultimate reality, why is it that we're not totally happy all of the time? This via negativa method is most clearly displayed in the Buddha's second discourse, the Anathalakana Sutta, also given in the deer park in Benares, and the teaching which caused the five companions all to realize enlightenment, the liberation of the heart from all delusion and defilement. In this discourse, the Buddha uses the search for the self, Atta in Pali, Atman in Sanskrit, as his theme, and by using an analytical method, he demonstrates that a self, quote-unquote, cannot be found in relation to any of the factors of body or mind. He then states, 
The wise, noble disciple becomes dispassionate towards the body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations and consciousness. In this way, he states, the heart is liberated. Oh, many of you will be familiar, we chant this quite often, the Anathalakana Sutta, and <coughs> uh, it's, uh, it's very much a, that, this analytical approach. So rather than the Buddha saying, what you truly are is such and such, you know, or you are the ultimate reality, he, uh, he approaches it through this, this way of negation, uh, anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self. So that he, he analyzes experience, okay, the body, is the body permanent or impermanent? Does the body change or not change? Yes, it changes. Uh, if something changes, can it be said to be uh, uh, free from affliction? Or is it subject to affliction? Well, no, it's, uh, if it changes, then it's going to be subject to affliction. If something is both changeable and subject to affliction, is it uh, appropriate to say that this is me, this is what I am, this is myself, etang mama, eso hamasmi, eso me atta, with the implication that the, the atman, the atta, would be blissful, would be permanent, would be uh, that one's, uh, the true uh, identity, one's true being. And so uh, that uh, uh, he, he leads people through by this, this uh, way of the, um, looking at the five khandhas, the body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness. And rather than uh, saying, what you really are is this, what he's saying is that uh, you can't really describe in words or concepts what that reality is. Therefore, um, he uses the method of helping us to see uh, what we are not, and when, once the mind lets go of what it's not, then what is real is what remains. That makes sense. Okay. <laughs> like that, the principle of Sherlock Holmes. Once you've uh, once you've discarded the uh, the uh, improbable, then what remains must be the actuality. That's probably misquoting Sherlock Holmes as well. So that um, this this is a very very common approach in the Theravada uh, uh, teachings. So you talk about nibbana, coolness. Uh, uh, you talk about anatta, not self, and so it has this this uh, uh, kind of uh, flavor to it of negation. And so that many, um, particularly uh, Western uh, scholars and commentators, when they came across Buddhist teachings. Then they 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 uh, labelled it, named it as a, a nihilistic teaching. It was life denying, life negating, and um, it was uh, an, an annihilationist uh, uh, approach to to spirituality. But uh, as we'll see as we go along, this was was very very much not the case. And the Buddha was aware that he was being misunderstood, and he was quite okay with being misunderstood. But he would. Uh, explain it when uh, when that was brought up and when he was accused of being a, a life negator or a, a nihilist and he, were, he would point out well that's uh, you might think it that way uh, think that it's that way but actually um, that's not uh, the true understanding of what I'm saying so this explanation implies that once we let go of what we're not the nature of what is real becomes apparent. This was the realization that the Buddha had tried to communicate to Upaka when they met on the high road. And as that reality is beyond description, it's most appropriate and least misleading 
to let it remain undescribed. This is the essence of the quote-unquote way of negation and, and will be a repetitive theme throughout the coming pages. And particularly um, on that, uh, uh, that area in chapter 10, which is called The Unapprehendability of the Enlightened, and uh, in, also in chapter 11, which is um, about uh, the nature of the enlightened after the death of the body, or at the death of the body. Secondly, throughout the Buddha's teaching career of 45 years, most of his attention was placed on offering descriptions of the path. If the goal was spoken of, it was usually in simple, general terms. However, one of the effects of having placed so much emphasis on the path is that the Theravada tradition has tended to speak very little about the nature of the goal, thus, thus often causing the, the goal, Nibbāna, to disappear from view, or become impossibly vague in concept, or even to be denied as being realisable in this day and age. One of the aims of this book is to collect many of the passages of the Pali Canon where the Buddha does indeed speak about the nature of the goal, elucidating this profound truth and encouraging its realisation. <clears throat> so that's a, a very um, uh, common recognition that when you, you look at the Pali teachings and the, the suttas, that, uh, the Buddha's uh, many, many, many teachings that he gave, that he doesn't go into elaborate descriptions about the nature of Nibbāna or um, the experience of uh, realising the Dhamma and the, the, the kind of terms he uses to describe it is something like it's peaceful or it's the good or it's the... Um, uh, the the uh, it's the free from from stress, uh, and so that uh, uh, that's in contrast to many other religious traditions where they get very very um, uh, elaborate descriptions about the uh, realization of of um, of the truth or, or union with Brahma or um, the nature of the the um, uh, the kind of spiritual fulfillment that they can people can look forward to, and. Uh, uh, dwelling a lot on those kind of what you you can call the metaphysical areas, or describing that which is not uh, immediately discernible to the uh, our ordinary senses, and so that uh, the the Pali Canon tends to. I mean, it's difficult to put a, a precise number on it, but I'd say something like ninety-five percent of the teachings relate to the path, and maybe five percent are talking about the. The, the nature of the goal, or maybe even just two percent. But what we tried to do, uh, Ajahn Pasna and myself, was to gather all of those two uh, percent or five percent of the the teachings, gather them together, and then put them into this package and uh, and present them uh, because uh, uh, of that sense of it being being left aside, or that the um, or you're uh, even to talk about realizing nibbana is kind of inflated, or you know that uh, the the era of the Arahants, even the era of stream entry is is uh, you know, has passed by, and uh, you know, that that's all from uh, for ages that have um, have, have uh, long gone. But uh, uh, what we were also aiming to do is to uh, say highlight that these particular teachings, and also to to highlight the the potential that we have as human beings that the Buddha taught human beings for the purpose of liberation. And we're still human beings, and there's still the the capacity to be liberated is 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 with us. So I'll pause there before I go on to the next section and ask if there's any particular questions, comments.
all perfectly clear? <laughs> okay, very good. So the, the, the next section is etymologies, which is a, uh, another rare English word, or rare-ish, and it means how a word is put together and where, <coughs> where a word has come from, how it, is <coughs> how it has originated. So this is a couple of dictionary definitions of, um, of Nibbana, and the first one is from Nyanatiloka's Buddhist Dictionary, which uh, if you are not familiar with this, then I would highly recommend. This is a, a very wonderful compendium of Buddhist teachings. It's not just a, a dictionary in terms of having a sort of two or three word description of, of words, but it has a whole um, long passages that are quoted from the suttas and, and also Venerable Nyanatiloka's own explanations and descriptions. So it's there are quite a few copies in the library, and it's highly recommended as a useful handbook for Buddhist teachings. So this is Venerable Nyanatiloka's definition of Nibbāna from his Buddhist dictionary. Nibbāna, or Nirvana in Sanskrit, literally, extinction, coming from nir plus va. Nir meaning to, is a, neg- a negative, and va is to blow, like vayodatu, the, the wind element or the air element. So near plus va, to cease blowing, to become extinguished. According to the commentaries, also freedom to, from desire, coming from near plus vanna. Nibbana constitutes the highest and ultimate goal of all Buddhist aspirations, i.e., absolute extinction of the life-affirming will manifested as greed, hatred and delusion and convulsively clinging to existence. It's a great phrase. Convulsively clinging to existence. And therewith, also the ultimate and absolute deliverance from all future rebirth, old age, disease and death, from all suffering and misery. So that... um, (coughs) Um, again, the, the, the terminology translating um, nirvana as extinction, uh, as a, again Lumpo Sameda would often say, when we use a, a translation like extinction, it rather feels like we're sort of we're trying to emulate the dinosaurs. Say, oh, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great when I'm extinct? <laughs> and so, again, it has a bit of a negative t- twist to it. Um, so, uh, uh, even though it's accurate, it's the going out of a flame, but we'll we'll look um, uh, at that uh, the imagery of of the flame and the going out of a flame in in a, the next chapter coming up. But uh, that um, uh, say the that with one one particular definition also freedom from desire near plus vana v a n a meaning a, a particular kind of desire is another. Uh, way that it can be translated. So then the second definition comes from Venerable Tanisaro from his little book called The Mind Like Fire Unbound. Uh, Un, coming from near, plus binding, vāna, V long A-N-A. To understand the implications of Nibbāna in the present life, it's necessary to know something of the way in which fire is described in the Pali Canon. He just talks about it here as well as in the next chapter. 
There, in the Pali Canon, fire is said to be caused by the excitation or agitation of the heat property. The Tejo Datu. To continue burning, it must have sustenance, upadana. Well, that means fuel, sustenance, as well as the word for clinging. Its relationship to its sustenance is one of clinging, dependence and entrapment. When it goes out, the heat property is no longer agitated and the fire is said to be freed. Thus the metaphor of Nibbana in this case would have implications of calming together with release from dependencies, attachments and bondage. This in turn suggests that of all the attempts to describe the etymology of the word Nibbana, the closest is the one Buddha Gosa proposed in the path of purification, un, from near, and binding, vana, unbinding. So uh, those of you who are familiar with Ajahn Tanisaro's books will know that he stoically sticks to unbinding as his translation for Nibbana. And uh, nobody else has picked that up. <laughs> it always makes me think of... Um, the, the skiing holidays when I had as a little, uh, little kid to go off to Austria or Switzerland for a, a, uh, a holiday that my grandparents would pay for and that the, uh, when your skis you, you always had these bindings on your skis and, your, and whenever you fell over your, your bindings would come off so unfortunately um, <laughs> that is not a state of coolness when, you're, when your skis get your skis come off and I mean that's they're all very, very different technology nowadays, but in those days you had these sort of long wires and, and sort of clamps around the front and the back of your your boots, and and uh, and so it uh, the unbinding is has got an image, a, a mental image for me of being tangled up and falling head over heels in the snow. So, I think General Balado, I think, was a ski instructor, so you'd understand that. So. Um, uh, technically, that's that's very correct. But uh, uh, Ajahn Tanisaro is, I think, the only person who um, who uses unbinding as the translation for nibbana. And uh, we ask, we quote from many, many of his his books in this volume. And so Ajahn Pasna and I asked particular permission: Can we not translate it as unbinding? Can we just leave it as nibbana? And so he very graciously allowed us to tweak his his writings so that we didn't have that un, uh, the unbinding um, sitting there. Uh, but rather just use the, the, the Pali word Nibbana as we, as we went along. So this, uh, I feel, is, is very helpful. And a, in the next um, chapter about the images of fire and heat and coolness, it goes into this a, a little bit more. But uh, the image of a fire going out for us, like the, the dinosaurs becoming extinct, is like something that was live and, and alive, then becomes dead. So we think, oh, the fire's gone out, it's dead. But the, um, what he points to here is very, uh, uh, very, very helpful and very skillful, is that rather than the, um, the fire uh, going out meaning a, a kind of death, it's rather that the energy that, that's potential there in the, in the woods, say, um, it is, it, it's um, not in a state of agitation or clinging. It's not like the flame is stuck to the, to the wood and the, and the energy is in a state of agitation. Um, as he says, it's, uh, uh, it, the image of a fire going out has implications of calming together with release from dependencies, attachments and bondage.
so that the, the fire element is released from being trapped in the flame, which is a different way of, of holding it. But uh, we'll, we'll uh, go into that in a little bit more detail in the next chapter. There's also uh, Frida Wint, who's a very good friend of the Sangha, uh, who passed away last year. Um, she had another uh, pet etymology, because va- uh, Vana also means a forest. Um, <clears throat> and so that she felt that it was uh, another way you could translate ni- uh, Nibbana was getting away from the, from the jungle, getting away from the forest, and not being sort of caught up in the, the jungle of, uh, of uh, greed, hatred, and delusion, but getting out of the, getting out of the woods, as it were. And uh, whether that has any, um, any basis, I think um, all of these, it's a little bit of a, a sense of guesswork. But it's also it's interesting that, uh, as I understand it, that the the Buddha was somewhat unique in in using the word nibbana to talk about the goal of the spiritual life. It was uh, it was not a term that other spiritual uh, teachers were were using at that time. Uh, as as far as I'm aware, that it, he was he sort of picked up that term and used it to um, to uh, uh, say describe his perspective on spiritual fulfillment and so that um, uh, uh, is it also reflects a, an aim that he has he didn't try to use complicated or very super sophisticated language so that when talking about the the body and mind he uses the the five kundas a kunda means a heap or a lump it's like a pile like if you have a, a pile of, of earth it's like it's a kunda it's a, your shoulder is a is a kanda. It's just a, it's a lump, a heap. Um, uh, so that he uses ordinary everyday language, and then through these, uh, using those terms in the context of his teachings, then people get a sense of oh, there are these five heaps: there's the body heap, the feeling heap, the perception heap, the mental formations heap, and the consciousness heap. So he was trying to use a kind of language that was not just comprehensible by Brahmin scholars, but farmers and, and villagers and, uh, and, uh, and ordinary family people could easily understand uh, what, he was, um, what he was saying. And so that uh, the word Nibbana, is, uh, um, <clears throat> whether it means getting away from the forest or the, the going out of a, of a flame, um, it was a f- uh, seemingly it was a very common household word, and as Ajahn Buddhadasa pointed out, that the 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 meaning of it just really means cool down. So just the the use of the English word uh, cool or cool down, cool down. That's really what nibbana means. Just cool, <laughs> chilled out, and that uh, uh, as Ajahn Buddhadasa uh, describes it, there's places in the in the scriptures where uh, when somebody has cooked a, a pot of rice, they, they put it to one side to nibbana, to, to cool down, so that, that, it, that the, it sort of uh, lose a bit of heat so then it's, it's not too hot to eat. So you, you leave it to, to cool down a bit. So that it's, a, it's giving a, a very tangible sense of that, uh, that experience of cool down. So um, if the, this, say the... Um, Speaking about this imagery of fire and the, the nature of the fire element can be a bit sort of, oh, what's all that about? It's, the, it's more helpful to see, well, what it means is just chilled out. <laughs> it means uh, that uh, the Nibbana is, um, 
is uh, just that that cooling. So once you've you've cooked something, just to let it sit there for a bit. So then, okay, now it's the right temperature to to eat. Any questions? Yes, Martin. I was just thinking: uh, is there any connection between the problem and practice of keeping the fire burning? Well, yeah, we do get to that in a later chapter as well. <laughs> but it's uh, exactly that. I think the the Buddha was uh, he was brilliant as a teacher, and so he, uh, uh, <clears throat> along with the Brahmins, who were the uh, they often had a practice of, of fire worshipping, and that it was the obligation of a Brahmin householder to keep the the fires uh, burning, to keep the fires alight. That uh, the Buddhas said, no, no, we want to let the fire go out. That we don't want to keep it burning, like the the fire sermon uh, that we we chanted this morning, uh, uh, the morning puja. The fires uh, we have. Um, the the eye is burning, the ear is burning, the the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind is burning. What's it burning with? It's burning with the fires of, of uh, passion, uh, hatred, and and delusion, raga, dosa, and moha. And so, <clears throat> the the wise noble disciple, seeing thus, seeing that the all the senses are burning, lets the fire go out, becomes cool, nibindati, in relationship to the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. So. Against, uh, in terms of the Brahmins keeping the fires going, he says, no, let the fires go out. <laughs> and then for the, the the two main spiritual groups in India at that time were the Samanas and the Brahmins. So the Brahmins were like the priests, sort of the priestly caste. Um, and so they had a very high rank in society and they carried out pujas for, for uh, births, marriages, deaths, blessings, and, and all of that area of life. And then the summoners, or the yogis, the wanderers, and they'd stepped out of the caste system, and they were the meditators, the wanderers. And so uh, Brahmins were often quite comfortable, uh, household, was a wealthy householder types. But the summoners were sort of wandering yogis. So the Buddha identified himself as a summoner, and his <coughs> monastic disciples as summoners. But the goal of the, um, uh, the, the ascetic practices of the summoners of the Buddha's time was to develop what's called tapas, not the Spanish tapas. <laughs> they didn't have little restaurants, but tapas is heat, so that like, spirit. It literally means heat, but it's uh, the spiritual power that comes from asceticism. So, like Shiva, the Lord Shiva was the supreme ascetic, so he had this sort of immense spiritual power that came from his tapas, his austerities, and the 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 idea was that. The more uh, pain that you experienced in your austerities, in your ascetic practices, the more tapas you developed, the more heat. Um, and so that the idea was to develop this kind of spiritual uh, power. And so my pet theory, uh, one of my pet theories, is that the Buddha deliberately used the word nibbana to counteract the other summoners talking about tap, uh, tapas. So uh, another word for a yogi is a tapasin, is a like a one who's developing that a kind of um, psychic heat. So that uh, he d deliberately, I feel he deliberately 
chose these ways of speaking to get people's attention. Like not keeping the fires alight, but letting the fires go out. Not developing heat, but developing coolness. <laughs> and uh, so that that um, uh, it's like a di- whole different way of speaking about the spiritual life. And, and that kind of change of expression can be what gets people to go, oh, that's that's wrong. That's uh, no, nah, that's not what I've heard before. And then, so he gets people's attention by using a whole different language and whole different kinds of symbols, that sort of shocking, startling, um, and um, uh, to get people's attention. Like I remember one time uh, a number of years ago when the uh, uh, Lumpur had uh, Amravati had been open probably. Uh, six or seven years, seven or eight years, and so it was a very well established place. Chithurst was very well established. Lumpur was very well known, and so and people would come along to the the talks, you know, Sunday afternoon talks in the summertime, and and so people were very familiar with the kind of um, things that Lumpur said all the time. And so uh, for a certain period, he started talking about the soul. And so all us faithful Theravadans say, soul, soul, what, what? Lumpur is talking about soul. What, what? And I thought, that's exactly the same method. <laughs> you know, he just had a, he was just playing with ideas and, and a means of expression. But I felt he was doing exactly the same as the Buddha was doing. Like, coolness, cool, no, 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 we want heat. Heat is good. We don't want coolness. No, 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 that's all wrong. And so that gets, that sort of, Instead of sort of, oh yeah, here goes Lumpur, yeah, I really like it. <laughs> I love Lumpur's number talks, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So play it again, Lumpur, you know. But uh, not just letting you sort of doze off, but you know, challenging you to see things in a different way. Yeah, exactly. That he's talking about rather than than uh, say union with Brahma for eternity. That speaking about ending birth and death, which again was often uh, interpreted in a nihilistic way. That he's a what they call a bunohuno, which means a um, wrecker of being. When someone is, insu- is trying to insult him, and he says, you're a wrecker of being, bunohuno. And he says, well, actually, I am, that's correct. <laughs> but then he sort of qualifies it by saying, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I, my teaching is designed to, to wreck being greedy, being full of hatred, being deluded, you know, such like. But I think that's, that's exactly right, that the, the, the idea of the Brahmins was that they were maintaining the order of the universe by keeping the fires um, going. And that, the, again, the, the Buddha was trying to, uh, in a sense, counteract that bhava-tanha, that, that desire to become. And also it's, it's interesting, um, uh, and uh, uh, I think uh, it's, it'll be quoted very, very shortly. Um, that uh, uh, it's in a later passage, where just after his enlightenment, 
he he realized that his insight into reality was was really subtle, and that um, the uh, let's see if I can find it. Of course, you can never find it when you want to look for it. But, uh, the um, the the experience of uh, of trying to teach would be frustrating because. Here we are. Yeah. Uh, no, nope, it's escaping me. <laughs> well, after his. Uh, Enlightenment. Then his first inclination was not to try and teach because he felt no one would understand it. And uh, let's see. So that he thought you know, the whole world is is uh, addicted to being, is committed to, to to being, to becoming. Is is it relishes only being? But what they relish. Um, <coughs> Brings fear, and what they fear is pain. So, uh, and then he he, he uh, said, if I tried to explain this, that would just no no one would understand it, and that would just be wearying and troublesome for me. So, and then in terms of uh, him speaking about being mistaken as an, a nihilist, he says, I have been baselessly, vainly, falsely, and wrongly misinterpreted by some samanas and brahmins. Thus, the samana Gotama is one who leads astray. He teaches the annihilation, the destruction, the extermination of an existing being. As I am not, and I do not proclaim this, I have been baselessly, vainly, falsely and wrongly misinterpreted, because both formally and now what I teach is dukkha and the cessation of dukkha. Okay, so I'll just read a a few more. So we go into the... um, Definitions, the first section of definitions about uh, Nibbana. So, before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, being myself subject to birth, aging, ailment, death, sorrow, and defilement, I sought after what was also subject to these things. Then I thought, why, being myself subject to birth, aging, ailment, death, sorrow and defilement, do I seek after what is also subject to these things? Suppose, being myself subject to these things, seeing danger in them, I sought after the unborn, unaging, unailing, deathless, sorrowless, undefiled supreme release from bondage, Nibbana. So we use that as the inscription for our greetings card this year, <laughs> part of that. Because we just built this nursing kuti, or the aroga, the unailing, uh, aroga means unailing or freedom from sickness, as a sort of deliberate double meaning, as a, a, it's for a dwelling to live in to be cured from sickness, but also it's a, a reminder of that quality of being which is intrinsically free from, from sickness. 
So that was from uh, Sutta number 26 in the Majima, and this is a quote from the Sanyita Nikaya. That which is the exhaustion of greed, of hate, and of delusion is called Nibbana. This is truly the most peaceful and refined, that is to say, the stilling of all formations, the forsaking of all acquisitions, and every substratum of rebirth, the fading away of craving, cessation, Nibbana. And then the last quote in this little group. The remainderless fading cessation, Nibbana, comes with the utter ending of all craving. When a bhikkhu reaches Nibbana thus, through not clinging, there is no renewal of being. Mara has been vanquished and the battle gained, since one who is such has outstripped all being. The term such here is a translation of the Pali word tadi. It is an epithet occasionally used for the enlightened. It will be seen again later on in chapter 6 and its passages from Nyanananda Bhikkhu. So as with many of these passages, you could spend quite a bit of time going over them in, in detail. But um, I feel that that first passage, um, that's always been a very, very powerful uh, ref, uh, sort of impact on, uh, f- uh, for me that, uh, that, has, that brings whenever I read it, even though I've read it many, many, many times. That uh, in the uh, the kind of Buddhist mythology that we have, we have the story of the Buddha being taken out in his chariot by by Channa and seeing the uh, an old person, uh, a, a sick person, uh, a dead body, and then a wandering yogi, uh, and these are called the four signs. But you, you don't actually have that events uh, as such happening in the in the Pali Canon. There's a description of a previous Buddha, the Buddha Vipassi, in one of those suttas in the Diganikaya, describing that that kind of um, uh, encounter uh, before uh, he left the palace life. But that was you know, 91 eons ago. But in the life of Gautama Buddha, the Buddha of this era, that there's no description of that. But uh, rather his own internal reflections uh, and, and uh, recognizing the presence of aging and sickness and death. Um, and it's over the years, it's sort of been mushed together. They've taken that story of the Buddha Vipassi and mushed it together with the, the, the life story of, of uh, Gautama Buddha. But uh, what you have is, is this, essentially this passage where he, he has this, this kind of uh, very simple but very powerful reflection. You know, here I am, a human being, and I'm spending my time uh, uh, say looking out for um, physical pleasure, uh, in, enjoying myself, uh, investing in the the body and this uh, the palace life and the kingdom and social um, re- you know social relationships of various kinds. Um, but all of this is only going in one direction: my body, my relationships, the palace, the kingdom, that the. All of this is is all is very unstable, and uh, and all of these lives of myself and the, the, all the people around me, they're all heading heading in one direction. So why do I put so much time and attention into that? Why why should I not seek or put my uh, attention into to um, uh, something that is say uh, not limited by those same qualities? And it's a very simple reflection, but I feel and that's one of the reasons why I, I uh, took the opportunity to put it in the greetings card this, this year, because it's a, it's a kind of 
painfully simple logic. Like, yeah, <laughs> I spent all my time chasing you know, the, the, being subject to birth, aging, ailment, death, sorrow, and defilement. Why do I just chase after everything else that's also limited in the same way, colored, colored in the same way? Why do I do that? Uh, suppose um, I instead I seek after the unborn, unaging, unailing, deathless, sorrowless, undefiled, supreme release from bondage, nibbana. So I feel it's one of those very, very simple, very direct passages to to consider and to to pick up and use for our own practice. Like, yeah, why do I do that? <laughs> I know where this goes. It goes to disappointment. It goes to feelings of insecurity and loss. So why do I keep steering my mind in that direction? What what drives it there? What what's what's causing that? So it um it helps that that kind of uh, uh habit of mind that continually steers our, our actions and our choices towards, you know, further attachment, further identification and and rebirth. Then these other passages um, is that this is <clears throat> truly is the most peaceful and refined. That is to say, the stilling of all formations, uh, the forsaking of all acquisitions, and every substratum of rebirth. So that's the, the phrase translated as substratum of rebirth is upadi, which is another one of these Pali words that is difficult to to define. But it's um, the, when you say the stilling of all formations or the forsaking of all acquisitions and every substratum of rebirth, this is uh, talking about that, that same kind of um, uh, urge in the, the heart to, to uh, identify with uh, our thoughts, our feelings, identify with the body, our possessions, our, our failures, our successes, to, to, um, <clears throat> to uh, say, get born into different activities, different roles in society, different, uh, uh, say, um, identities. Uh, the relationship we have to our possessions, acquisitions, or our reputation, what people think of us, how many friends we have on Facebook, or you know, how, many, um, <coughs> how many people read our books, or uh, how many Christmas cards we get. And that the... You know, the uh, uh, or uh, acquisitions can be how many meditation retreats you've been on, how many years you have, how many years as a monk have you acquired. You know, you know, that the acquisitions doesn't just mean material wealth, but uh, it's uh, pointing to that uh, as soon as the mind thinks that it owns something, that it's <coughs> that it's um, say it's got to get something or it's got to get rid of something, then it's like the, the, um, the, the uh, disentangling of the mind from all of those uh, very, very deep and powerful habitual urges. Uh, but uh, again, that the, 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 the Buddha's reflection after his enlightenment um, was that uh, there's no point trying to explain this because nobody will understand it. <laughs> And that it, uh, uh, oh, here we are. Here's the passage I was looking for. I considered this Dhamma that I have realized is profound, 
hard to see and hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle, to be experienced only by the wise. But this generation delights in worldliness, alaya. It takes delight in worldliness, rejoices in worldliness. It is hard for such a generation to see this truth, namely, specific conditionality, idda dependent origination, paticca samupada. And it's hard to see this truth, namely, the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all attachments, upadi, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. If I were to teach the Dhamma, others would not understand me, and that would be wearying and troublesome for me. So the Buddha wasn't going to bother. <laughs> so if, if uh, it's hard to get this sense of, what does that mean, the stilling of all formations? That does mean sort of nullifying the mind, freezing the body, sort of stopping everything. What is that? And uh, <clears throat> forsaking all acquisitions, are we supposed to sort of get rid of the body or get rid of the mind somehow? So part of the purpose of putting all these teachings together and also giving a, um, uh, trying to, to give a, a context of, of a Dhamma practice to reflect on them with is because it is subtle and abstruse, difficult to understand. <laughs> yeah, you have to think the newly awakened Buddha had the, uh, the uh, impression that this is so subtle, this is so much against the stream, this goes so much against the current of, of uh, habits of mind, there's no point even trying. That's an amazing thing. If you think, uh, again, with the mythology you have of the Buddha having countless, you know, millions and millions of lifetimes to develop all the ten parameters in order to reach Buddhahood, and then having reached Buddhahood after those gazillions of lifetimes, for the benefit of all beings, he then says, <laughs> <laughs> can't be done. Can't be done. That's a pretty amazing thing. If you, if you think it through, it's pretty amazing. All those lifetimes to, to, to develop all the perfections for the benefit of all beings, and then finally he arrives at Buddhahood and this all-encompassing knowledge, and then his first thought is, there's no point even trying. That's a powerful reflection. The, but then the Brahma Sahampati beams down from the Brahma world and says, Brahma Chaloka Dipati Sahampati. That invitation to give a Dhamma talk recounts that same incident where the, the Brahma de- deity Sahampati says, Venerable Sir, please, <laughs> for the sake of those with just a little bit of dust in their eyes, please share the understanding that you have. And then the Buddha cast his eye around the world and realized, yeah, the Brahma is correct. There are, there are some beings with just a little bit of dust in their eyes. So We're very grateful that the Brahma Sahampati intervened. But I feel that it just in terms of spiritual symbolism, that's a, a powerful statement after all those lifetimes of preparation that the, the, the insight was so, was into how things work was, was extraordinarily clear. There's absolutely no doubt in the Buddha's mind about you know, how things functioned. But then there's this thought, no one's ever going to understand this. This is too, too much against the current of, of perception. This, this goes against the grain. No one's going to get it. So that, that uh, so if you find it difficult 
to digest this or get a sense of well, what is? It's not annihilation and it's not affirmation. So, is it kind of a bit of each, <laughs> yeah, or, or how does that work? And it, it it's it does take a lot of reflection and also getting a sense for these kind of um, the kind of terminology and uh, what the, uh, the the terms are, are pointing to. And it's not something that, that comes easily or directly, but uh, it's often within meditation where you, you take a single term, uh, like, uh, say, the letting go of all acquisitions, letting go of, the, uh, of, of ownership, or um, upadi, the substratum of rebirth. Upadi, what is that? <laughs> Taking a, 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 a the stilling of all formations, all everything that's formed, how can that be? How can they be stilled? What, what's that relationship of stilling or being or stillness in relationship to the endless flow of things, perceptions and Im, impressions and thoughts coming into being and dissolving? How can there be stillness in relationship to this ever-flowing uh, current of perceptions? How does that work? So uh, it can be really very, very beneficial to take a, a single word, a little principle like that, stilling of all formations, the, um, and to, to pick it up in meditation or just to reflect on that, to say, how can that be? What's, what's my experience of, of real stillness? It's not just when no one's coughing or my knees don't hurt. That, it can't just be that. It's got to be something else. So how does that... How does that work? And just exploring. And it doesn't mean you necessarily have to come to a definitive answer, but rather picking up a particular principle like that and and um, uh, investigating, looking around it and, and uh, getting a sense for how things work. So I'll leave it there for today. Um, we got up to... Uh, quotation number 1.7 those of you are keeping track and uh, <coughs> we'll uh, carry on with the uh, the remainder of this chapter tomorrow will be well